Stressed out? Got somewhere to be? Why not wait at your local bus shelter? Stand beside your friend's auntie in the pouring rain as she tries to ask you why she doesn't feel excited about life anymore. Ignore the gurgling sound she makes when she swills the contents of a vodka-filled water bottle around her mouth. Smile through the darkness as you pretend to ignore the smashed shards of yesterday's broken bus shelter glass that rest on the wintry earth. The bus shelter stands bare and barren. While waiting for the bus, make sure to start smoking again. It won't make the bus get here any faster, but it might shave a few years off your life. Hey, you. No, not you. The man standing behind you in the shadows. He's awake. Today I'm talking to Keith Cassidy, clinical manager of Smarmore, a treatment centre for alcohol and drug addiction. We talk about addiction, denial, recovery, psychology and a few controversial opinions. Please don't message me about it in the DMs. I'm too important to read my DMs. I'm Frankie and today you're tuning into Meditations for the Anxious Mind. Namaste. see <laughs> i was reading that there and i was like i wonder what keith thinks of this now i was like what the fuck did i sign myself up for um where's the exit That's yeah, what yeah yeah <laughs> just imagine jumping out jumping out the window um yeah thanks so much for coming on keith i really appreciate it it's been a long time coming uh you've been asking me for so long to be a member of this podcast <laughs> and um yeah and and I mean, we'll get into how we know each other in a while, I suppose, if if you're open to that. How did you get involved in the field of addiction yourself? Oh, I was in my early 30s when I trained to be a therapist. Um, But I decided long ago to be an addiction therapist uh, as a result of my own recovery. I uh, I had to go to a treatment centre for alcoholism when I was 22. Yeah. And in there, it was mildly suggested to me I might consider it as a career down the line and I kind of held on to that idea um, and I think I was very motivated by what I saw in there by the help people got and I thought it would be a pretty meaningful job to do when uh, when the time came around and then certain things happened then around my early 30s that kind of made me sit up and take notice and think maybe the time is now to do it uh, it was kind of life changing events um, I was diagnosed with cancer and I also had a bereavement where my mother died very suddenly. So it was really within a short period of time, I had a moment where I thought, I've been planning to do this for a long time, maybe I should get on with it. And that started my journey then into training to be a psychotherapist. But I always knew because of my history, because of a background of being in recovery, that I'd, I'd really predominantly only work in addiction. That's that's what I find as well. Being in actually in in the treatment center that I met you in, um, I I've always found, like you know, everyone in there. There's a place for everyone, but I could always relate more to people who had been through the same issues I went through. And uh, so you know, I can I I could talk to you now without knowing you, without even talking about alcohol or drugs, and I'd be able to understand the way you think. Unfortunately for you, <laughs> or me, but, I don't know which. But likewise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I think uh, I, I think that's 
that's probably the most re- would would you get most of your meaning from that in, in what you do in life um, I think it gives me somewhat high level of purpose and meaning in life I think there's other aspects to my life that also do in terms yeah. of my personal life uh, which is really important to me so I like to hold I like to hold that balance too but certainly I feel very privileged that I do a job that is so meaningful yeah. it doesn't really feel like a job as a result of that um, yeah because there's a huge sense of purpose and, yeah, uh, a sense of, yeah, just having a, a privilege, really, to be able to be part of somebody's journey mm. as they as they seek out recovery. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'd say it's a big part of it, but it's not all of it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, you, were, you were a huge part of my own journey in, in recovery. And that's even, even when I... When I knew you in, in treatment, I could sense that. We actually spoke about, like... Uh, while we were in there because we used to have great conversations in there and uh, we spoke about at some point in the future doing a podcast so here we are now here we are could you imagine yeah there was a, there was a condition put in that that you have to be have so to be. many years along the road so yeah. congratulations on that thank I you I have to say that uh, very much. the fact that we're both here in this room doing this podcast is testament to the fact that you are so many years down the road yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I, but yeah I was privileged to, to see the seeds of this podcast and your career as it is today watching that develop in the early stages so uh, that's a good example of of the privilege that my job is just watching people come into their own um and losing the this the shackles that addiction can put on people and and beginning to embrace their authenticity and the person that they really are thank you and career is a very strong word there keith well, there you go yeah sorry, sorry <laughs> thank to, you like, it, sorry it to normalize you <laughs> yeah 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 but um so you're in Smarmore now. You're the clinical manager in Smarmore, and uh, we used to we used to see Smarmore. They they go to uh, some. Uh, they I, I I bump into them because I wasn't I was in treatment not so far away from there, and uh, we used to just know them as the place that had the swimming pool. The place that swimming pool. <laughs> and uh, you know, but it's uh, how how has it been like difference wise? What what's it like there? And mm-hmm. the the other question I want to ask you as well. So you got a list out here. I'll ask you all the questions. Um, one important question I think that the people would like to know is how do you know you're ready for treatment and how do you know that you have a problem because a lot of people are in denial they know, they might know but they don't vocalise it what mm. what would your take be on that? Alright well uh, two questions there yeah. and, uh, one is, one is, <laughs> Answer the second one will you? Answer the second one first yeah um, how do you uh, I think deep down I think everybody regardless of what, what we see as, as in everybody on the outside, I think everybody who struggles with an addiction deep down knows that this is a problem because they know the promises that they've told themselves never to do this again. They know the narratives that they've given themselves that I'll never let this happen again or I'll never go as far as X happening again because, you know, there have been certain watershed points in their life that they thought would never happen have happened. And sometimes only they know, actually. Even their closest family and friends may not know how far down they've gone. A lot of it is secret. But deep down, I think they do know and so, therefore, the denial is really only externalised for everybody else, because addiction really requires that to to to, to survive and to to, to continue. And um, so, I think I've never really met anybody when they've been really honest with themselves who went, "Yeah, actually, I've known for quite a while that I was maybe could have been here," you know. And something may have brought them to the door of a treatment centre, um, some event, or maybe an intervention from family or something. But more than likely, it hasn't been a surprise to them, although they may be presenting that way. Um, and 
it's just the process of addiction really in play yeah. um, as a way to try and keep itself active um, because as soon as the denial is broken, you mentioned it before, there's accountability then and responsibility has to come in. Yeah. Um, so as soon as the person really breaks through that level of denial, externally and internally, then their task would happen to be responsible to do something, whatever that happens to be. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, you can you can be accountable on a Monday and, and you're like, okay, fuck, <coughs> this is a serious problem. But then mm. as the week goes on, you start to feel better and, and you start to go, actually... No, I don't have a problem. Yeah. And and that that can happen a lot. And, um, you know, I'm sure a lot of people would love to know when you, because you, do you, are you involved in assessing people to get mm. into treatment? I'm sure you are. I am in Smarmore, yeah. And so I'm going to answer your first question now. Yeah. So how Smarmore? Smarmore is great for me. Yeah. So it's a little bit different than the last treatment centre. It's a shorter programme, uh, but it, it offers uh, a different level of service, really, in terms of that we have the opp- opportunity to detox people. So I really have a philosophy of minimum waiting time to get in because like you just said, sometimes when somebody is at a point of looking for help and wanting help, you have to act quickly in order to access that help and get them in as soon as possible because the addiction has ways, the process of addiction has ways of bringing people down different uh, blind alleyways again. Maybe I wasn't that bad after all. Maybe everybody's overreacting. Maybe I can do it differently. If I, Maybe if I stop drinking spirits and drink wine, maybe if I do this, that and the other. And all of a sudden then the option of treatment goes out of the window. And uh, it, we're onto another trajectory and onto that hamster wheel of active addiction again. So really my philosophy in Smarmore, and it's wonderful to be able to do it, is to try and reduce the waiting time as much as possible, as in matter of days yeah. before we try to well. get somebody in. Um, and we can act, actually detox somebody on site, you see, so we have that freedom. It's not that we require them to be clean and absent before they get to us. Yeah. We can offer them the service of a detox. So... Wonderful, because the last treatment centre I was in was a little bit different. Uh, it was at meeting people at a different stage in their journey. And it was an equally enriching uh, experience for different reasons, but uh, a very different way of working. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I think uh, that that was actually, I wanted to touch on that as well, and you kind of answered it about um, w- one of my friends, Lynn. Uh, Lynn is her name. She, uh, I don't know why I had to say her name. I feel like she'll think I'm Are you gonna pretending it's later? my own question. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she she was asking me to ask, has there been any, just as far as waiting times, because obviously Smarmore is different. I do have friends who were looking to get into treatment over the course of the lockdown mm. and, and they were waiting six months, some of them. And it's what, like, you know yourself what can happen in six months time. Yeah. And uh she suggested something that I never heard. I'm sure you have. Um, if there could be some sort of e-support um, while waiting. So is there is there anything uh, in play as far as treatment options where you, you go, OK, well, you have two months and you have a bed here, mm. but here's the support that we can give you in the meantime. Is that, I know maybe it's not so much a thing for Smarmore. It wouldn't be a thing for us because we've worked very hard to try and get people in. I suppose we've just expanded now from 22 beds to 36 beds in order to meet that demand and be or in order to kind of process people a lot quicker into doors. Yeah. So it's not something we can we need to offer because our approach is to, to, to really try and get people in as quick as possible. I just don't know what other treatment centres do mm. in those instances if there's such a long one. Yeah. But I think they'd need to be something to help stabilise and support people before they got into treatment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's different like recovery options available anyway that mm. that would would help people before that. Um, and so just about assessing people then mm-hmm. in uh, in Smarmore or any of the other places you've been in, um, 
what what do you look for what what is it that you're looking for and also how do you know some do you ever get the feeling that someone's going to make it or not make it and what causes that you can never tell yeah. you can never tell who's going to especially by the end of somebody's treatment you can never tell how it's going to be because we're not privy to to what they're we know maybe to some extent what they're going back out to but we really don't know to you know the actual experience of where they're going out to and what it's like so we never know and I think the day I start predicting is the day I'll give it up because mm. it's impossible. Um, and, you know, some of the, and I use the word advisedly, worst cases I've seen have the best recovery today. So really it's not about, you know, severity of addiction or anything like that. For me, it's just that desire to be, embrace a life of recovery. I think it's, that's really the difference between somebody who, who succeeds in this or who doesn't. And I think that involves a lot, actually, because... I've always said like a recovery, a life in recovery has to be far better than a life in active addiction. And again, it goes back to that being responsible for creating that life. So putting in place the things that are fun in recovery, putting in place the hobbies, the friends, everything that's good about life and, and substituting a very, you know, a very difficult life in, in active addiction and often very lonely an isolating life in active addiction with one that's full of different activities and, and a rich tapestry of interests and supports family, friends. And then I think the option to relapse becomes a little less, um, maybe a little less um, likely because there's so much at stake then. Yeah. I think when there's less at stake, I think sometimes the addiction can find a way back in. And and I think um, the thing you said about you really need that willingness. Like I see it all the time with friends of mine and all that. They uh, <laughs> Some people come in to recovery and and they seem like, you know, they they seem like they're completely broken. And a lot of the time, like you as well, I don't I don't like to predict. I used to, uh, but then I stopped gambling. Now. <laughs> but uh, oh yeah, glad to hear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, like you see, some people, unfortunately, you come in, and and I was one of these people because I I relapsed, you know, uh, before in the past, and uh, they come in and they're not done and they're not ready, and. I found a lot of the time there are people who struggle the most, uh, whereas somebody who's you know been through the ringer a lot of the time they're going to do the things they need to do to to go into it, like to stay in recovery. And you know, there's no cut and dry, obviously, but no. I don't think so. I don't think it's a cut and dry, and I don't think I think yeah, um, I don't think I've ever met a hopeless case. Mm. Never. I've met people who don't want to be helped at that particular time. But, you know, I've seen that change or or maybe I've met people that what I had to offer as a therapist didn't suit or didn't work. And that's fine. But they got something somewhere else. I've never met someone who was utterly hopeless. And you hear that expression a lot. He's a hopeless alcoholic or a hopeless drug addict. And, and I cannot honestly, in terms of my own long career in recovery and and, and then working in the field, I've never met someone who was hopeless. Um, I've seen the most the most severe cases turn it around and, and, and develop a really strong recovery with a great life. Yeah, um, yeah, and I've, I've seen it too. Mm -hmm. And um, that was, you, you mentioned addict alcoholic there. That was that was another thing <coughs> I wanted to ask you about. So I remember, <laughs> I remember, I won't say where it was. I remember going in somewhere and instead of, Frankie, you're, you're a drug addict, you're an alcoholic or whatever, they said I had severe, what was it, severe drug use disorder or something. Yeah. Severe, yeah, it was one of those medical mm -hmm. medical terms. And uh, 
there's a, a, I think George Carlin does a bit about it, um, comedian about like the softening of language as time goes on, uh, and and the more syllables that gets added to it, the meaning gets lost, mm. and uh, I feel like that's something with uh, substance abuse disorder, whatever it's called. Mm. Um, would you where where did that sort of language come in, and why? I think you're right. I think it comes in from the medicalization. Um, so um, there is a, the DSM, which is Diagnostic Services Manual, um, and I think they, they they have removed the concept of addiction, as has the American version of it as well. Um, has removed the concept of addiction. Everything is alcohol use disorder and substance use disorder. So this is where this this narrative now is developing. Um, now, there's a debate which I'm not qualified or getting into around <laughs> Get into you know, the key. <laughs> how these how these uh, manuals have medicalized a lot of conditions and uh, have been sponsored then by the pharma companies. Mm. Um, it's a debate that I'm not sufficiently uh, equipped enough to, um, to to comment on. However, I don't see what's wrong with the concept of being addicted. Mm. Uh, I've never have seen the con- what's wrong with the concept of being addicted. Um, and oftentimes what people do then is they... You know the addiction kind of uses these concepts to 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 hang the denial upon. So I'm not addicted, but I had an alcohol use disorder. Um, you know, so okay, well, what does that actually mean? Because the consequences are just the same regardless of what we call it. So I'll work. You know, I'm happy to work with anybody in terms of where they're at in terms yeah. of the phrases they use, because really we're not looking at that. We're looking at what has this condition cost you, and we're not talking financial cost. What has this cost you in terms of your life, in terms of your relationships, in terms of your career? Maybe, you know, your role as a parent or your role as a child or sibling, friends, etc. It goes on and on and on. That's where the cost really is. So regardless of what we call it, the consequences are just the same. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, alcohol use disorder, you can you, you can't drink, but you can smoke hash out of a Coke can. It's like it, that's that's the sort of <laughs> the sort of way it goes. That's what that's why my head of think if someone said, Frankie, you've alcohol use disorder, but everything else is still on the cards. There's a good example. Yeah. 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 But um, so there was a few uh, there was a lot of questions asked. Um, and uh, what's your home address? <laughs> Can I even lend the 20 quid? Um, so there was, do you mind, I was going to say, do you mind me asking a few questions? But we're on a podcast. So, That's what I'm here you know, for. Yeah, and the door is closed. So it'll, it'll be an effort to have to run away. Um, how do you support, like, as predominantly a cognitive behavioural Therapist? No, not oh. behavioral therapist. Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> Who are you? Again? No. <laughs> Maybe you're the wrong person. Here. <laughs> no. Um, well, your 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 experience anyway in uh, in in psychotherapy. Yeah. Um, yeah, that that works, doesn't it? <laughs> um, how would you uh, How would you go about helping? Because there's a lot of people that listen to the podcast and, and who reached out to me whose mm. uh, siblings or loved ones or parents or whatever yeah. uh, struggle with addiction and alcoholism. How would you go about helping a family who want to kind of get well amidst their loved one relapsing and using? How would you how would you go about offering support there? It's a really good question because the general acceptance uh, opinion now is that addiction is a family condition. So, in other words, if there's a person in the family addicted, the whole family are struggling with that. The whole family are suffering because it does, it, it reverberates all the way through. So, if one person in the home is, a loved one is addicted, then yeah, that person is suffering and everyone else in the family is suffering to some extent. And it can be hard to see that because it didn't happen overnight. 
Nobody just wakes up in the morning and becomes chronically addicted. It happens over a series of very small incremental steps. And all of a sudden the family are oftentimes looking around going, how did we get to this place of, you know, chaos sometimes and, and utter madness in terms of the behaviours? How do we get here? And you did, you got there and everybody got there incrementally. Um, and, and all of a sudden then they're like, what do we do? And there's nothing a family member can really do except have very strong boundaries around the behaviours and have very strong boundaries around what's acceptable and what's not acceptable in the home. But to do that always with the, with the, with the, with the threat of love and compassion. And they talk about it, for, it's a concept years ago from the 60s and 70s of tough love. And uh, I think a lot of people would have looked at it and seen the old versions of treatment centres and stuff as having tough love. And why I would always say that they, a lot of times those treatment centres forgot the love. Mm. And, and I, I always say to family members, don't forget the love. You, you might need to be tough on the addiction. You might need to be tough on what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. You may have to, you know, enlist the help of a professional, whether it's a treatment centre like Smarmore or a therapist to help with an intervention to help the person who's struggling with the addiction. But whatever you're doing, whatever approach you're doing, um, um, don't forget the love in terms of that, inter- in that, that, that dialogue that you're, you'll be having. And the second thing I would always say is get your own help and support. You'll need it. And there's loads of organisations out there that can help people who are family members or loved ones of someone who's addicted whether it be a therapist or an organisation or, or, or some self-help groups as well can specialise in that. There's loads and loads of support out there because it is recognised that the family are struggling as well. Yeah, yeah. And there, there was a guy called Richard Rohr. I don't know yeah. if you heard of him. And he yeah. said, uh, the, the truth without compassion is brutality. Yeah. And I think that really touches on what you were saying. Mm. And um, yeah, that, that, that leads to the next, to the next question of... Uh, like my experience with other addicts and alcoholics is like 90 I don't know we won't give a percentage most of them are sensitive they're kind and they're generous and and good people deep down although they've done some horrible things and but then there is a percentage who aren't who you know what they might be addicted but they're not necessarily they're, they're damaged in other ways and so what about somebody when you need to cut someone out of your life who is addicted, but they're also toxic, and uh, and 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 they've no they've no willingness to get sober. Without even when they are sober, they're still not much better. How you you mentioned boundaries there? How how would somebody go about that? Because that was one of the other questions I was asked. Okay, well, I suppose just to pick up on a point when you said you know they're toxic when they are sober, but are they sober if they're mm-hmm. still displaying that level of of? of toxicity or difficulty in relationships because that wouldn't be sober. That might be abstinent from drugs or drink, but um, would it be actually, you know, living a sober life? So I do believe in my heart and soul that two things I've never seen and worked in treatment centres and been around uh, recovery a long time. I've never seen, I've never not seen that addicts have two things in common. The first thing is that they're incredibly sensitive. Absolutely, and, and oftentimes when I work with families, I ask what 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 was what was what were they like as a child, you know, and especially if I'm working with parents and they're a very sensitive child. I'm not that fucking sensitive. <laughs> so <laughs> don't know if you can. So and I certainly can identify with that myself. Yeah, and my own story. Yeah, too, high yeah. level of sensitivity and and treatment centers a very interesting place to work then because you have this population of very sensitive people. And in addition to that, <laughs> there's uh, so things can can go you know difficult at times yeah. you know just because people get hurt. Um, 
And the other thing that people have, uh, and that's common, I think, and as a result of addiction more so than anything else, whether it was there before or not is questionable, is incredibly low self-esteem. So now all of a sudden, uh, when we're looking at addiction, let's let's look at it as this individual who is incredibly sensitive with a very low self-esteem. Will that change how we actually interact with this person? Will that change who we see and what we see when we're looking at this person? Because oftentimes when we talk about that level of toxicity, what we're seeing is a projection of their own their own difficulties into the relationship or onto the, the other person. Yeah. And actually we're seeing what we're seeing is a manifestation of pain, emotional pain, um, and, and it just being unable to tolerate that themselves um, and, and surviving in any way they can. Mm. So I question the level of toxicity if if addiction was really treated and recovery had really come into the picture because the actually the nicest people I know are people in recovery from addiction. Mm. because uh, they've really kind of embraced that sense of their true self, embraced their sensitivity and embraced their sense of who they are and their compassion for other people. Um, some of the best people I know, like, like you, are in recovery and some of the worst people I know are dry drunks. Well, that's an interesting concept. <laughs> dry drunk Isn't it funny? It's just, it goes to show how doing a few simple things mm. can make, like on a daily basis, can make the difference. In, like, like with me, and, and with my own recovery, maybe maybe you're the same as well. I can be anywhere. Like my my mood can change from like like most of the time. I I do what I'm meant to do, and you now I have I have kind of things I do. And I know this is meditations for the anxious mind, but I do I do that still. Like meditating, I do certain routines in the morning and stuff. And uh, and and when I don't do it, I'm. Um, my head is just it can be all over the place and uh, that like sort of sensitivity can come back but it can come back in um, like it's more like obstinacy it's it's like you know I'm like like someone can say something to me I'll pick them up the wrong way whereas if you said it to me on a day where I'm feeling okay in myself I'd, 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 like, I'd, it'll just go straight over me and um, but it is funny like I'm sure a lot of people would want to know. There's there's people asking here. What what do you think going forward, like after treatment? So the aftercare, as far as like relapse prevention, what what do you think the options are? So there's the obvious, the twelve step ones. Mm. Uh, do you what what do you think is the best kind of? Okay. So for me, speak and this is from my. Uh, I went to a treatment center that really uh, introduced me to the concept of the twelve step model, and I've been to some extent for better or worse involved in that since the very start and that was back in the late 90s um, I had left that concept behind for a while and I went into that area of dry drunkenness myself mm. um, very difficult but Welcome overall that, yeah that's my uh, that's my experience of something that works it's 80 years well it's over 80 years now in existence and um, there's a lot of lot of research done on it and there's a, there's a lot of debate around it but from my own experience of watching people uh, getting a very meaningful and strong recovery and long-term recovery, that's what I've seen works. Mm. So I work in a model as well in terms of Smart More is also a 12-step model treatment centre. Mm. So that's going to be a big part of it. And, and that's the Minnesota model as well. The Minnesota model yeah. it's called. So that yeah. it stemmed from a place in Minnesota yeah. and the first treatment centre was around the 1940s and uh, I'm not going to bore you because... Uh, no, 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 <laughs> bore me. <laughs> but it, uh, so, so it's a very holistic approach to addiction treatment okay mm-hmm. so it's not it's more than just the 12 steps if it's done if it's done to the to the to the ethos and the core of the minnesota model it's a multidisciplinary approach 
Yeah. So, um, and that really what works because everybody requires an individual treatment plan. Everybody involved it requires an individual approach. However, your questions around aftercare. So obviously, being embedded in the 12 steps, I do believe that, you know, continuation with that is, is an essential in terms of aftercare. Um, and that's why we still see people going to meetings who are 20 years sober because they're not doing it because they absolutely love meetings. I'm sure they do. But they're doing it to attend to their addiction so they don't relapse. So it's a strong relapse prevention measure. Mm. In the shorter term, I always, and we always recommend as Marmor, to um, access the help of a therapist after leaving. So to begin, to, to continue working on the, the material that came up in treatment in a one-to-one with a therapist. In addition, we would also absolutely uh, encourage people to get a sponsor. So a sponsor is somebody who helps the individual through the 12 steps. And finally, we offer a, an aftercare meeting. So that's for two years. And again, that's really important because it's a place where the same people turn up every week. Everybody's been in the same treatment centre and you can share at a very and get some support at a very detailed level as to maybe how, the, how, how things are happening within the week and what you might need to do. So it's, it's a much more in-depth supportive environment for somebody and that's available for two years and it's a really important part of recovery and treatment and statistically I think it, 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 the, the, the outcomes are far better for somebody who does two years of aftercare than somebody who doesn't do any mm. Yeah it's an indicator for long term mm. like recovery and yeah. um, you, you mentioned there about getting a therapist and, and you, you still run your own private practice and am, am I outside that? Or? Mm. Oh right, okay sorry yeah yeah yeah, loads of these. yeah 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 um, yeah, ring Keith on one eight hundred five zero five eight one five. But um, yeah, so so you you run your own private practice where you deal with, I guess every all all walks of life. And uh, when do you know? And 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 this is a question I wanted to ask. When when do you know somebody has finished therapy? I don't. They do. Mm. So actually, the real essence of therapy, uh, when and we're talking now general psychotherapy as opposed to addiction counselling yeah, or yeah. addiction therapy. The client will name it themselves. They'll they'll talk about coming to an end of therapy that they've you know been on the journey and they feel there's a natural end coming up. And the healthy way to do that is process it with the therapist, and it can be quite healing even in terms of the ending then because mm. uh, it's uh, it's very much part of the therapeutic process. But it's not for the therapist to decide. Yeah, yeah. It seems like it would be uh, nearly you you could you can end up hurting people's feelings if you go ah, ah we're finished now. It'd be like if I pulled the seat up. Whoop. Get up there again. <laughs> Time for the bus. Um, I, yeah, I think I think sometimes with addiction, and I used before I was working in treatment centres, um, I used to work more with people who were looking for help with addiction. And I suppose I was my predominant thing was to try and help people get access to the twelve step model, or some support group out there, as well as doing therapy. And and at that point, then at that point maybe the need for a therapist was less because there was an embrace of the 12-step meetings, there was a sponsor, there might have been other supports in place. And therapy can become a little, especially for someone who hasn't done treatment, therapy can come back into the frame down the road a little bit. Mm. But it depends on the individual. My theory on addiction is it's not a one-size-fits-all. Everybody is an individual. It's one condition, it's one word that everybody uses, but it's a very individual uh, condition when you actually deal, work with somebody at a level you discover that their addiction is quite different maybe the story is similar maybe the consequences are similar but the underlying driving forces behind the addiction can be quite quite individual mm. and I think that's where it needs to be worked out with everybody and, and I think um, 
people respond in different ways as well don't they and yeah. I think that can be a lot to do with their own personality even prior to addiction yeah. um, and uh, you know and, and, and it goes back to like it could be even beyond that it can be like the day they're having and how, how they're reacting there and um, mm-hmm. yeah and uh, yeah Smarmore I remember like everyone who I know went there they loved like they loved the food so much there it nearly made me want to go back myself <laughs> but um, that was uh, what like this is probably a stupid question but why is the food in treatment centres always so good <laughs> like you never hear of bad treatment centre food no Never. Um, when I start working in a treatment centre, I put up a stone, and I don't think I lose it until I stop. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it is good, and I think it's good for good reason. And I'm kind of thinking my own. I mean, in, in my latter days of my addiction, I a lot of my drinking was done in pubs, and a normal meal for me would be a soup, half a bowl of soup, and a ham and cheese sandwich. Yeah. So the concept of eating meals really went out the window for me and, and I got reintroduced to that really as part of my recovery. So again, it's an holistic approach. So it's part of feeding feeding the mind, body and soul, if you like. Yeah, and, uh, yeah well, that, that makes sense. It's the routine you have at the yeah. same time every day. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter if you're kicking up a fuss an hour before or, you know, I want to eat now or, you know, it, it's delayed gratification as well, I suppose. And it's about nutrition, you know, um, I certainly, I, I certainly wasn't one who looked after myself nutritionally. Mm. Uh, and when I went to treatment, I discovered, actually, you know, there's, there's benefit to, to attending to those needs as well, yeah. nutritionally and having, having good home-cooked meals. Um, yeah, there was probably a bit more than I needed, but that's okay at that time. Um, but I think every treatment centre will attend to that, yeah. Okay, so I wanted to ask you this, Keith, because I remember you spoke to me about this before. So... You talk to me about um, the specificity of your addiction. So, like, what say if you're addicted to cocaine? That's very telling of something that's missing in you, or something something that you're looking for. So, do you what? Can you explain that a little bit? Uh, yeah, I suppose I can only talk about my own approach to this. You know, because every every clinician, every therapist, every counselor is going to have a different approach. But my approach is. As a kid, and I still am, I was fascinated by detective stories, okay? Um, and I love, you know, the who done it and, and finding, you know, following the breadcrumbs. Yeah. And I think when somebody comes into treatment first, I'm, I'm thinking that way, really, about the breadcrumbs. What breadcrumbs are there? What do we know already? And some of the things are given and facts and people can really, you know, connect with immediately, which is what you were taking and how you were taking it. And sometimes that can lead us to, okay, that's interesting. Because, for instance, if we have a gambler, First question is, what? how did you gamble? Was it online or in, in betting shops or was it in casinos? So that, that will tell me different things maybe. Or suggest, it doesn't tell me anything, but it just suggests maybe different things. Even what do you gamble on? Is it cards? Is it is it slot machines? Or is it sports betting? Whatever. So again, trying to build a picture. So what I always try to do is build a picture of the addiction. Because in some way it met a deficit. In some way it answered it answered a few problems. It answered a few questions that somebody had way back. And what happened was, or my belief is, what happened was it answered so many questions. It did such a good job. They stuck with it through thick and thin, through consequences, good and bad. And eventually they all became bad. Because mm. all addiction, all no, no addiction started out being horrific. It started out by meeting a need, by, by being a solution to a problem and being a very good solution to a problem. So whatever that was. So we can we can discover some of that maybe in terms of the get, getting a history and getting a picture of how the addiction took hold and where it took hold. Mm. So it's all about the context, really. 
yeah yeah so that, that's just... interesting isn't it <laughs> yeah and 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 uh like in my own with, with myself when i look back at myself when i was like 15 um that was the same with alcohol with me because that was the first thing as as a lot of people do that was the first thing that i ever went to and i remember like as a kid like the first my first memories and i don't know if it's the same for everyone else but i had this like really tight feeling in my chest constantly like it was just sitting down on me mm. and uh when i took a drink it's like it just all just melted away yeah. and i didn't have to because part of it was like i wanted to i wanted everyone to like me i wanted to be the class clown i was acting out with me when i look at my own life keith uh I, I had a good life, like I, I, had, I had a, I had an amazing family, like I already said, and um, you know, like middle class background. No, like as far as the house, anyway, mm. that the home life, there wasn't like trauma there. It was more just, um, it was more how I just interfaced with the world, and like in in school as as a young kid, anyway, there would have been a little bit of bullying, and and there would have been maybe like. Um, I just felt different. That was the first thing. I felt different. And then I was like, okay, well, I just showed them how different I am by, like, trying to stand out and, and trying to be accepted for being different. Mm. And, you know, I didn't... Where Most people kind of wanted to be the same. I was weird in that way. I wanted to stand out, but I also wanted to be accepted. And uh, so I, when, I, when I drank, it took all that stuff away from me. And, because like, that's... It's almost like living a double life. Uh, I could just be myself and I wasn't afraid of the consequences of that um, and, and I felt okay and and we were talking about recovery there and, and when I'm connected and I'm good myself that's what I get in recovery and, 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 and realising then that I didn't need any of that and I didn't need a substance or I didn't need because really like it was it was obviously like you said it was amazing at the start it filled something in me that mm. was missing and um but but it started to like it, I don't know if you want to say it was like my spirit became really dark uh, while I was going through that and uh, I remember you saying in in treatment it was one of the first things I think you said and you were saying like recovery is like getting rid of all that shit I'm going to use my own words here and uh, stripping away all that so you're only left with the light. Wait, was that what you said? Yeah, everybody. I think I do believe everybody has that light within them still. And addiction hasn't killed it because they're presenting to to re, a treatment center for recovery. Mm. So that light is still seeking to be to be burning bright. You know, it's just it's uh, it's been covered over and it's been hidden. But uh, it's it's our job to help you find it. Mm. Mm, yeah. uh, but we can't fucking turn the thing off it's on. that's great <laughs> we get a switch or something no <laughs> we should let it shine bright <laughs> but it's interesting you talk about that spirit because Carl Jung talks about that and mm. Carl Jung would have been a you know the famous psychologist and he would have been a, an early influencer of the 12 step model yeah and he went and he, he, he really kind of talked about that link between spirit and he even went as far as to uh, talk about it in terms of spiritus contra spiritum which means that the alcohol spirit kills the human spirit mm. so he made that link really between you know a spiritual thirst and people drinking and having a spiritual thirst and trying to fill it with spirits so he yeah. really kind of went to it went with it yeah. Um, so yeah it that's what happens that's what it experiences it's like the light goes out in people's eyes sometimes mm. but it doesn't that's what it was with them. me yeah. Yeah. yeah you probably would have seen that when I when I came into uh, and, and, and something I, I'm always grateful for uh, actually, we we could edit this out if if it's not if it's not okay. But uh, you you let me into Tabor as an emergency case. Uh, I I was 
I suppose I, I was in a bad way coming in and, and you went out of your way to let me in there when you didn't have to. And it was at that point I knew that it wasn't just a job for you, mm. that you weren't just ticking boxes, that you... I Like, I didn't see... I didn't see what the reason was for giving me a chance, uh, but it was a huge part of my recovery and I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Mm. Well, I think... Where 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 we can, we have to give someone a chance to recover. Mm. But uh, it's it's uh, that's the privilege of it. Yeah. Being able to provide someone with a chance is all we can do. Yeah, and and the knock on effect from that, like you know, just as far as like you you'd see it all the time. Like it's it's not just me that that's affected, but then my family and and you spoke about it being a family disease, and, and my family have, are recovering from that. And and they they're not worrying about me and they trust me and then that that goes on into the their interactions with other people, and and it goes on and on like that and I'm not trying to say I'm really fucking important, <laughs> but it does have a knock on effect. It does, definitely, yeah, you're right. I think I I always talk about it being recovery is infectious. Yeah. So it actually affects everybody in the home in the yeah. family, um, just as much as the addiction can affect people. The recovery can have an equally beneficial effect. Mm. Yeah, Omicron right phase two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and 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 you would you have found higher amounts of people coming in or looking for help during the lockdown, or do you find addiction is addiction no matter when? I think addiction is addiction no matter when. But I think what I'm finding is people are presenting blaming the lockdown, yeah. blaming, <laughs> and, and and I have to say I, I kind of challenge that straight up. I'd say uh, you do. <laughs> uh, COVID didn't make anybody addicted. What it did was it took away, it took away the the distractions, and it took away the consequences for the addiction to prosper. Mm. So if I always talk about COVID being the perfect petri dish for to to grow addiction, but it needs to have been there before. Yeah. And when you start unraveling and unpeeling it back and looking at people in terms of their life story, you find addiction has been present a long time before COVID. But because you know the requirement to turn up to work is not there, so so um, maybe you know there's more downtime. You know, there's no distractions in terms of having to go to the gym, meet friends, etc. All of a sudden, the consequences and the normal social activities are taken away, and the addiction can really prosper mm-hmm. and 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 come at a at a rate that's probably faster than it would have done. Come to the fore. Yeah, so it can exacerbate it. Absolutely yeah. exacerbate. Yeah. Yeah. Like before COVID, a lot of experience in terms of working with addiction. Before COVID, a majority of people I would have worked with would have ended up, their story, their addiction story would have ended up them sitting on their own actively addicted. Whether it be engaging in a substance or being online in terms of gambling, pornography or whatever. Um, But it was always ended up in their home or in a room on their own with the curtains closed uh, engaging in their addiction. And at some point that became just too much. Mm. And through an intervention or through their own move, movements of of one to recovery, they they made some changes. So that's no different to COVID. COVID just provided the ideal opportunity to do that mm. in, a, in a in a way that was normal, normalized. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that that can that and that that obviously leads to its own mental health repercussions. On top of that, and uh, mm. you know, and yeah, Jesus, I, I'm I'm definitely lucky that things happened the way they did because I I don't know. Well, addiction is a very lonely and isolating condition. Mm. Uh, so you know and COVID was a very lonely and isolating uh, experience for most people mm. so put the two together and I think uh, it'll definitely come to the fore very quickly but yeah. uh, it's I not a good combo not is a it? very good it's combo it's not a good power couple and you know COVID hasn't been very healthy uh, because you know the reason why all these things exist is because it's difficult being human we need connection we need distraction 
um, we have this thing called consciousness that drives us mad if we're left with it on, their own, on our own or too well. Mm. So, you know, the reason why COVID is difficult for everybody is because um, it took away all of the necessary distractions and relationships and survival mechanisms that it means to be human. Um, and that's just a condition that we all share, whether we're addicted or not addicted. And it can be really difficult for people. You know, yeah. uh, very very difficult for some people. That, that's uh, that's that's such a good way of putting it. I, I wouldn't have thought of it that way. It, it's like when you sometimes when you sit down to go to sleep, you won't notice your thoughts until you actually lie down. You turn off the lights, and uh, yeah, <laughs> I can imagine uh, it's just it's just an extension of that. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so I won't, I won't keep you too much longer, okay. Keith. Uh, we just have twenty more. Co- no, joking. <laughs> I'm having, I'm having so much yeah. fun here. So, so there's one one that I know probably. I have a fair idea how you're going to answer this. Somebody asked, "Is weed addictive?" <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm going to do a therapist thing. How do you think I'm going to answer this, Frankie? <laughs> 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 Just as a matter of interest. Um, well, see how predictable I am. <laughs> okay, okay. So, uh, I suppose you 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 would see the the very negative repercussions of what we can do to someone who's prone to addiction, and yeah, you're gonna say it is addictive. <laughs> Highly, I have a. I, I just had this conversation. Uh, if I don't have children, if I had children, mm. I'd have a horror of them taking weed. <laughs> um, it, it is. It does so much damage. Is unbelievable from what I can see. Mm. The, the the level, and again, I'm only talking now in terms of my experience of dealing with people who have an issue with it. But yeah. the severity of the addiction and the difficulty in treating it as an addiction is very, very high. Um, so I would say it's absolutely addictive, and. It comes with huge consequences and huge price to pay. Mm. It takes a long time for it to leave the system. It takes an even longer time for the brain to readjust because it does such a neurological uh, job on the brain. Um, and it affects motivation. It affects will. And um, it affects motiv- uh, motivation, I've said before. And it... At times, I've seen people being quite paranoid long after their last last smoke, mm. like as in being delusional. Who paranoid. told you that? <laughs> <laughs> so what I've seen, you know, and I've seen people, you know, with heroin addiction, cocaine addiction, all substances, alcohol, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. And yes, they're all horrific in their own way, but I've seen the recovery being much faster mm. because neurologically, I've seen that the the THC in weed has a long term effect on the brain. It eventually comes back around, but it's just much longer than the other in the other substances. Yeah, so. and, and that was that was what it was with. Uh, like, I, I think I think the argument there, what 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 people tend to go on, and, and what I did when I was a kid, I used to have arguments with people and say like, and and then having my own experience, mm-hmm. I can see that you know even when it was just when I was just smoking weed, it was fucking my life up, you know. But that was my own. That was my own experience. I know like 90% of people can kind of smoke it and get away with it or whatever. Um, that's that's my medical study that I just did there. It's the but, same with alcohol, isn't yeah, it? I mean, yeah, yeah. You know. and, and, and like, but, but people say there's no like addictive properties mm. in it. But still, like I still smoked it every day, morning, noon and night. And it was like, uh, yeah, there might not be addictive properties in it, but I'm still justifying using it in every situation. So the ends justify the means. So, you know, I, I still use it as 
and addictive substance. Or I did anyway. I won't speak for anyone else. Mm-hmm. But uh, so, do you know? Does that make sense? Like where I'm coming from yeah. with that? Yeah. I think people rely on this addictive properties, and and a lot of substances don't have addictive properties that end, uh, people end up in treatment for. So mm-hmm. um, it's not about whether it's addictive properties or not. It's whether it meets a need within the individual that it becomes a compulsive use and develops into an addiction with severe consequences in terms of the impact it has on their life. Then we're into addiction, regardless of whether it's chemically addictive or not. If there's a reliance on using this substance uh, to manage oneself throughout the day, then we're in the realms of being addicted. Mm. And I always say to somebody, if it doesn't have addictive properties um, and, and you're not addicted, that's great. So give up for two months and tell me how it is. Yeah. Um, and, and come back to me and tell me how it is, you know, because mm. that's a real test. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, for me, two months was impossible to give up on alcohol. I could, I could give up for a week or two. Yeah. I think I gave up for six weeks at one time. Yeah. But that Torture, was it. Torture, I'd say. Um, yeah, it, it wasn't fun to be around, put it that way. <laughs> it wasn't like, you know, just stopping drinking isn't enough, you know, yeah. because uh, I wasn't I wasn't a good person to be around, you know, mm. it wasn't fun. Um, and, you know, that's why, you know, addiction needs treatment because it's not about the substance. It's about living without the substance. It's about enjoying life without a substance, not just about not drinking. And I suppose people think, well, if you, they don't drink or they don't do weed again or they don't do cocaine or whatever, so that's it. It's not, not addicted anymore. But actually, maybe, for those who aren't addicted, that's it. For those who have an addiction, they're going to probably have a, they're going to probably have a problem without that substance because that substance exists because it meets a need. Mm. It meets, it's a medicine. Yeah. It's, a med- it's a medication for life. Um, and they often say, like, you know, what's the difference between an alcoholic and a heavy drinker? I'd say, well, there's very hard to tell so there's a rule of thumb that if a heavy drinker stops drinking their life gets better mm. and if an alcoholic stops drinking their life gets worse <laughs> because yeah. the coping mechanism has been taken away mm. and that would have been my experience you know yeah well that was mine as well mm. I, I noticed when when I, when I came in near, nearly three years ago now I, I in like January or whatever I came in you I, you were the first person I said it to about the whole relapse and stuff like that and, and then I came in and you were like, you know, you're going to really struggle for the first while. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I will, I will. I didn't believe you really. Uh, after all that, I still thought I knew better. And uh, But my head, for the first two or three months, it actually got faster. It didn't get slower. Mm-hmm. And to the point where I, I was in, I used to work in, on a night shift and uh, which I actually got offered drugs more in early recovery and drink more <laughs> than, than I did while I was doing everything else. But uh I'd be doing the hoovering or whatever, um, like actual hoovering, not... <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, you got that. Um, and, uh, well, thanks for clapping. Yeah, 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 just in case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I just want us to be on the same wavelength. Mm. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I was scared to do it because mm. that's when my head would speed up and it was to the point it was uncomfortable. And, and that's what it was like until I had an adequate substitute for it. Like... I needed treatment, I needed therapy, I needed all that, but I also needed to at some point start giving back. Yeah. yeah. And again, self-help books are about a person sitting in a room on their own reading a book. Mm. That's not what recovery is about. It's about connection. And, you know, we make connections by maybe asking for help and also offering help then when the time comes as well. So, yeah, I agree with you. There's no such thing as true altruism. Yeah. Altruism. <laughs> yeah. I'll try it again. But, uh you know, there is in a sense because uh, what better what better way to help yourself than help another person, you know? Mm. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but yeah, I don't think we could... No, I certainly can't read myself out of addiction. 
um, that's a problem. I have to act my way out of it. Mm. Uh, I have to. I'd probably look for the audio book even if we could. Yeah, I can't get it. <laughs> haven't found one yet. It's <laughs> no. going to work. But I have to actually do a bit of work on it, you know. Yeah. And uh, it's continuous, you know. That's the other thing because now that I cross that line into addiction, I have an addicted brain, really, you know. And I have to be very careful because addiction can manifest itself in different ways. So, mm. you know, coping. Uh, malad- maladjusted coping mechanisms can, uh, can present itself in my life in many different ways and I have to be very careful of that now yeah. and watch out for it because just because I'm not drinking doesn't mean I can't develop something else that's really unhealthy yeah yeah, yeah. Well, I tried to stop drinking coffee and I got till 3pm and I said I'm not doing this to myself <laughs> but yeah. there's always something but uh, Keith thanks so much for coming in I really appreciate it thank you uh, we'll have you in next week again <laughs> part yeah. two welcome to the present moment the moment present Christmas present your mom will only buy you gift vouchers cause last time she gave you money you used it to buy weapons Christmas weapons before we begin remind yourself that this time is for you and you alone allow no distractions no worries and no to-do lists to interfere with your distractions, worries and to-do lists. Take a moment to make yourself comfortable where you are. Wipe the piss off your trouser leg and stretch your last nerve. Time to wear yourself out. Once you've reached a place of stillness, imagine yourself on a packed bus and every time you open your mouth, Robbie Keane sneezes into it. Keep it closed now. Breathe in through the nose. Be careful. Robbie Keane might have COVID. Turn your awareness to the ground beneath you. That's where hell is. Feel supported. Seek comfort in knowing if you screw up too many times in this life, the devil will dine on you in his fiery depths of the satanic barbecue. As you continue to breathe, travel from the crown of the head, the plastic Burger King crown that you brought home with you one night in town when you were drinking alone, which, by the way, might have been the saddest thing you've ever done. That's what your bedroom is for. Feel the Burger King crown grow light like a feather because someone stole it off your head. Don't confront them. Keep walking, coward. If you keep walking, your taxi fare will be cheaper. As you breathe, it becomes harder and harder to keep yourself anchored to the ground because Pat Kenny is grabbing your shoulders and trying to pull you away with him in his electric hot air balloon. Resist the urge to fight back. Glide with Pat. Trust him. Know him. Let him guide you. And whenever you're ready, bring your attention back to the room and open your eyes. Thank you for joining me on this spiritual journey. I'm Frankie, and today you've tuned into Meditations for the Anxious Mind. Namaste.